Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's totaled. Even if you've never been through it yourself, we all know at least one person who's gotten that call from their insurance company. The call that explains that your car costs more to fix than it's worth and that they've decided to pay you a chunk of cash and send you on your way. But that's not the end of the story for your car. What happens to your car after the insurance company hauls it away? I'm Nick Seipel, and this week on Industry Focus, we're taking a look at the business of car auctions to understand how some companies make money selling cars that cost more to fix than they're worth. Here to help me take a look at that is Motley Fool contributor Luis Sanchez. Luis, great to have you back on the podcast. Happy to be back. Yeah, so, so fun topic for us today. What happens to your car after it gets totaled? Before we get into that, Luis, like, have you ever totaled a car? Like, you've ever had that, you know, phone call? Listen, dude, your car, it's broke, man. It ain't coming back. Yeah, I, I, I haven't. Uh, you know, I've had fender benders. I've had had scratches here and there. And it's it's funny. So I live in New York City, so I don't even own a car anymore. So <laughs> hard for me to total a car if you don't own a car. Yeah, well, you and me both. I actually don't own a car uh, anymore either. Got rid of mine after I moved up uh, to the D.C. area. The car I bought, uh, I, I had owned, was a 1997 Forerunner. I got after I totaled senior year of high school uh, my 2001 Honda Accord. Wasn't my fault. Was driving to school one day. I remember distinctly because we had a field trip to the International Food Festival day. So I'd paid my 15 bucks to get out of school for the day and go eat the free like international food. Right. I'm on my way to the field trip. This lady in a suburban, like, I guess I'm in her blind spot. She decides to change lanes, crunches the car, totals the car. I miss out on the field trip, and I lose my car and had to go buy uh, the car that I had. So um, been through that experience, kind of throws you uh, uh, for a loop. But always kind of high level, you know, I mentioned um, <laughs> the insurance company decides to total your, your car when it costs more to fix than it's worth. What goes into that calculus uh, uh, for the insurance company? How do they decide, listen, we're not going to bother with this thing? It's, it's really interesting. The, the it's I've referred to this as like the economics of a car crash, and there's a lot of factors that go into it. The but the the primary one is what you mentioned up top, which is if it costs more to repair the car than what the car is worth, then it's not worth repairing the car. Basically, if you need to put more into it, then you're going to get out of it. It's not worth it. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, but. A big one is the, you know, the used price car index, which is basically a benchmark for what, what the car could be worth. Absolutely. And if we look right now, uh, that, that index is near an all-time high, maybe kind of added you know, buying pressure from, from the pandemic and things like that. How is that affecting you know, the rate at which cars are being totaled and I guess the underlying business that, that goes into this? Yeah. I mean, first, you got to think about like, why, why, is the, why, why is the used car price index so high? And I think that's interesting in and of itself. And it does go back to the pandemic. So if, if you recall, uh, when the lockdown started, you know, one of the first things that were shut down were the car factories. And so there's kind of been this shortage of, of cars out there on the road. And compounding that is there's been an increased demand for, for cars in, in uh, certain parts of the country as people left the cities and uh, started to adapt to more of a suburban lifestyle. And a lot of people are also taking 
vacations that that require uh, driving instead of flying. So there's been all there's also been demand for rental cars. Um, but I mean, so so it really kind of boils down to supply and demand, right? Supply supplies supply is low, demand's high, and you know, you don't really think about it on its face, but it actually has a knock-on effect to all the companies that are in that ecosystem. Absolutely. And so I want to go into uh, the companies in that ecosystem that we wanted to talk about today. One of the main ones is Copart. Uh, the, the, when the insurance company decides they want to auction off your car, Copart uh, helps assist them with that. Their ticker, uh, CPRT. What, where does Copart fit into uh, into this process? After you total your car, we've decided, you know, it costs more to fix than it's worth. Uh what what happens to your car after that? And where does Copart come into that process? Right. Copart is a industrial marketplace, essentially. And their clients are essentially the, the guys who are trying to get rid of the car. So really insurance companies. And there's a few other uh, potential sellers of cars, uh, but insurance companies are, are the vast majority of, you know, they, that take possession of the total cars. And essentially... Uh, total cars get transported to these massive lots that are located outside of major urban areas, and they basically just run an auction um, that it's it's done online, it's done it in person, and there's all sorts of people who are trying to buy these uh, broken cars. And you know, I guess the other question is like, why might who who's who are the buyers and like why might they be interested in the car? Um, it's really all sorts of all sorts of uh, all sorts of participants. So um, there's a large participation of like foreign buyers. It's roughly a fourth of the uh, of the people who are buying total cars. And there's an interesting reason for that because the definition of a total car it, it could actually be different in the U.S. versus like another country. So it might actually be more economical for a buyer in another country to buy a broken or total car in the US and there might be a lower cost to repair it in that other country or it might just be harder to buy that that brand of car in that other country. Um, there's also what, what are called dismantlers who will actually uh, buy the car, take out like uh, sell all the uh, sell all the parts, the auto parts that are still worth uh, that still retain value and then just scrap the car. Um, and you know th there could also just be some scrappy repair shops who just know that they could fix the car and sell it for a profit. Yeah, and so fundamentally what, what Copart is doing is connecting the, these these sellers who have cars they don't want, or insurance companies, with all these kind of different disparate buyers out there in the market who, who have some interest in these products uh, for whatever reason, whether it's because, you know, you're going to arbitrage repair costs in different countries, or, or you, you know, you you are searching for some vintage car that only comes up for sale because you get one totaled off the back of a truck, uh, or, or something like that. Copart really, really helps connect those, those buyers and sellers in that market. So where does Copart extract value for themselves from that, uh, that operation? Yeah, so... The primary way they're making money is by taking a commission from from the auction. So it's roughly a 10% commission that that they take, and that's based on whatever the uh, you know whatever the the car goes for. So the, the really interesting thing about that is, as we mentioned up top, the value of used cars has gone up a lot, and that's actually been a benefit to Copart. 
because they get, you know, they, they benefit from higher auction proceeds. So, you know, their interests are aligned with their uh, customers, I guess you could say. Um, and it's, it's a really, so yeah. And I mean, that's the primary way they make money. There's also some like an ancillary things. So they, they sell so, like access to the data to potential buyers. They sell technology that could be used to, to bid at the auctions. So an example of that could be like, if you're a foreign buyer and you want to use like more advanced techniques to, to bid for cars, like let's say you want to have like a price monitor and you like almost like an algorithmic trading bot, right? Um, they might charge you a little bit extra for that. Um, they'll also do like inspection or, um, you know, handling the title transfer of the car. Another thing that's kind of interesting is they have uh, a service that will automatically pay back the, the car loan. At, once the proceeds have cleared from the sale of the car, they'll help the insurance company like automate the process of of uh, closing out the the car loan and transferring the title. So there's some like little ancillary services here and there that they can make uh, some extra money from. But it's you know the vast majority of their financials really are driven by the proceeds of of the sales. Absolutely. So, so the more cars that are getting sold off and the higher value of those cars, then the better it is for Copart. And I guess part of the driver of that is the rate at which vehicles are being totaled. And that that has been a somewhat of a tailwind for the business. If you look back over you know, the past 10 years or so, the rate at which cars are being totaled uh, you know, at full, or taking a, a full loss, um, that, that's been a benefit to them. Um, in addition to, to, you know, there can be some fluctuations in used car prices. One other thing I wanted to talk about, Luis, it's maybe interesting, is just the barriers to entry in this market. You'd mentioned having, you know, lots all over the country to be able to take this inventory, um, connecting all these different different buyers and sellers. How do you think about the moat that, that Copart has in the market in which they operate? There's, there's a few sources of a potential moat here. And, you know, I use that word marketplace up top and, you know, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around with like online marketplaces and flywheels. And this is kind of like an old school marketplace. Uh, they, they benefit from like, you know, liquidity, right? Like there's a network effect. Buyers, buyers pay attention to this auction and they want to come and bid at this auction because they know that there's going to be a good source of, of cars and the insurance companies want to take their cars to this auction because they know that there's going to be a lot of bidders and they're going to get the best price. Um, the other thing too, is that there's like, like geographic, it's kind of like geographic monopoly, right? So just like where these lots are located, they're very strategically located outside of metropolitan areas where there's a lot of car traffic, where there's urban uh, density. So, um, and, and frankly, like these lots are huge. So, just having the space to to hold like literally like a thousands of cars is is not like it's not nothing right it, it costs money to to set up that lot and you know i think the bigger probably the bigger barrier really is just like any kind of marketplace or auction it's really tough to get started you know if if you don't already have buyers and sellers like it'd be really 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 hard for us to kind of set up a, a co-part competitor tomorrow because who's going to bring us their cars and how can we assure to them that there's going to be enough buyers to, to sell their cars at, at competitive prices? 
Absolutely. It's one of those things where once you've, you're set up in a geography and up and running and, and have these relationships, just really hard to see, like, why do I need another lot a- across town? Like, why do I need two different, you know, logistics infrastructures to think about bringing different things about if I'm the insurance company or anything like that? Um, so just some of these, it's one of these businesses where like the physical infrastructure uh, really helps them out. It reminds me of a, you know, it's a different business, but like Vulcan Materials, they own like aggregate. They have locations all over the country, the same type of thing because of the cost of shipping this stuff. Um, you know, they only need, you know, so many in certain uh, uh, locations. So when you, when you talk about, um, Luis, part of a, a, the driver of the business for Copart is you need totaled cars to go to auction. And, and a lot of people uh, you know, will we'll talk about this rise of, of autonomous vehicles, I- improved safety technology um, in vehicles, and the idea that you know, maybe sometime in the future we have far fewer accidents, far fewer uh, fatalities, those sorts of things. How do you think about that risk uh, for Copart's business? Right. So cars are getting safer, right? And that's, that's great for everyone. Um, but the reality is that we're still going to have accidents, even if cars are safer. And there's a couple of long-term trends that are actually working in their favor. I mean, the biggest one is really just that the population's growing and there's more people driving. There's more the, the uh, miles driven the total miles driven in the U.S. and around the world has steadily gone up every year, about like one to two percent per year. Um, so just kind of logically, the more cars that are on the road, the the absolute number of accidents is, is going to be higher. Um, the other the other interesting thing that actually specifically relates to autonomous and electric cars is that as you put like more technology into the car it makes it harder to repair the car. It makes it more expensive to repair the car. The, the parts in the car are worth a lot more money. So that actually increases, there's, there's an increasing rate of totaled cars, right? So if you go back to the 1980s um, and you look at like the, the car crashes that happened in like literally like 1980, only about 5% of cars that were in a car crash in 1980 were, were considered total. Fast forward 40 years and now it's, more than 20% of cars that are involved in accidents are totaled. And it's because of that gap between the, the value of the car and the cost to repair it. I mean, I've, I, I don't know if you have any insight into this, but I've heard that repairing a Tesla is, is extremely expensive, right? It, it's probably more expensive than repairing a, a Camry that you can probably source at like a local mom and pop uh, repair shop. Yeah, yeah, certainly there, there's puts and takes with Tesla because they, they run all their own uh, a service operation or, or, and make all their own parts and all those sorts of things. But, but certainly as you put more, more tech in a, in a vehicle, uh, it just stands to reason um, that the cost of repair goes up. So just an example to think about. So we're, we're entering this world where uh, you know, many more cars are going to have standard features similar to, to Tesla Autopilot. So you know, advanced driver assistance systems for, for, for the, uh, the highway and that sort of thing. And, and part of that is you see lots of automakers putting things like cameras and radars and LIDARs in their bumpers and all around the car. So you th- it turns from a fender bender that damaged you know, a cheap piece of plastic to a fender bender that damaged a cheap piece of plastic with LIDAR and cameras and radar embedded in it. And, and of course, um, and of course you know, auto, auto companies are going to take steps to protect um, that type of technology. But, but again, th- those t- that, that technology is sensitive and mistakes uh, uh, still happen. I think one other thing to think about as well is as autonomous technologies roll out, one of the, the first places they're going to be rolling out is to places like highways. So Tesla Autopilot 
highway, GM Super Cruise uh, highway. Now, now Tesla's tried to push out into some other areas, but predominantly uh, guided for use on the highway. And most accidents, uh, the highway is, ma- is much safer um, than than uh, the traditional surface streets makes sense. They were designed that way. You know, you don't you don't get a curve over a certain gradient. You never make an unprotected left turn. All those sorts of things. So I think there's an argument to be made that in the near term, as some of these autonomous technologies roll out and and their use case is applied in some of these areas that are already pretty safe, that on the margin you see some some net effects of of, of total loss going up because people are still driving and making those same mistakes, you know, when they turn left in the intersection or what have you. Um, now, there's, there is going to be a certain point, um, you would think, where, where crashes go down enough across the board uh, that it impacts somebody like Copart. But I would say that in the, in the near term, uh, there may actually be a little bit of a tailwind to go off of what, what, what Luis just said about we're on this long-term trend uh, towards higher total loss rates uh, uh, for vehicles. And with more tech going into the vehicle, I don't think that's going to turn in reverse in the, in the super near term, like next five years. Right. I mean, if you look at the data, um, back 30, 40 years ago, you know, the, uh, the rate of a fatality in, in a car crash was like three X, four X what it is today. And if you look at just like the past 10 years, you know, we've started to have some of these like technologies, these safety technologies and the, the rate of accident hasn't really, it doesn't go down every year. Right. And I think it's even, it's, it's been pretty flat over the last few years and, you know, maybe on the margin um, as, as autonomous vehicles come online, like you said, like it it does kind of ease lower, but this is already like a headwind that the company has theoretically been facing for a long time. Right. And there's actually some, some tailwinds to that. Right. Because now you have this whole issue of distracted drivers and, Potentially, people are are they they're using a Tesla autopilot, but they're misusing it, right? Because they're doing their makeup or watching Netflix on their phone because they think the car is going to keep them safe. When, as as we just learned, uh, Tesla is only like a level two uh, autonomous uh, driving car at this point. And then and then the other the other factor too is just that it's going to take probably a couple of decades, even once we have the technology to fully replace the fleet that's currently out in, uh, in the world driving. Absolutely. So I think it's something something to monitor, uh, but at least at the current trajectory of what it looks like that the technology is playing out, you know, I don't think it's something that's thesis breaking for the company. I still think there, there's opportunities in the future um, for Copart. Um, but, you know, I want to talk briefly in addition about some of these other companies in, in the industry, Copart isn't uh, isn't the only operator in this kind of car auction um, subsector. What are some other companies that we should be paying attention to, and how do they compare to to what Copart's doing? For sure. So Copart is like the three hundred pound gorilla. They have like fifty plus percent market share in this industry, which is you know which is great. That's one of the reasons why it's been such a fantastic business. It's really been a duopoly though. There's this other company called IAA, which is a little bit smaller, they have um, somewhere between like 30 or 40% market share. So actually still very sizable. And it's really just been a duopoly between Copart and IAA. Um, IAA was recently, I mean, two years ago, spun off of KAR, which is car auction services, which is another kind of car auction company that we could talk about in a minute. But basically IAA is like a mini Copart. And 
the way that I would frame the difference between IAA and Copart, other than just sheer scale, is that um, Copart has kind of been more on the leading edge of technology, right? So Copart, heading into this pandemic, one thing that has really helped Copart is they were already fully online with um, virtual bidding and virtual auctions, whereas IAA wasn't fully online at the start of the pandemic, so they probably lost a little bit of market share this past year. But now, you know, going through the pandemic, they they certainly got to 100% online, right? And the other thing about the other thing is that's kind of interesting about IAA and Copart is Copart is also an international business. Copart has really been growing in international locations. IAA is, is primarily North America, although if you kind of look at their recent earnings calls and management statements, IAA is basically looking at Copart and they're following the Copart playbook. So now IAA, they, uh, they're aggressively going into international market. They're aggressively investing in technology and they're aggressively kind of putting into place the best practices that Copart has, uh, has operated with and just trying to close the gap. So I think that's actually a really interesting story. If you like this industry and maybe you think Copart is, is too expensive, you know, maybe you kind of take a look at IAA and that's like more of a, a discounted way to play the theme. So would you say that IAA is like the Lowe's to Copart's Home Depot or the Pepsi to Copart's Coke in this situation? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's the number two. It's the underdog. It also operates at half of the profit margin as Copart. So there's a there's a potential investment story there if you think that IAA can execute on this plan to raise their margin and grow internationally. Potentially, IAA can push through a lot of actually a higher rate of earnings growth than Copart. And it also trades at a very slight discount to Copart. So that's why I, I think that IAA is, yeah, it's, it's very analogous to, to Copart and it's potentially an interesting investment if you like Copart. Absolutely. So the question is, is there enough of an execution difference between the businesses to justify uh, that difference in valuation? Because if, if, if IAA can, can execute, the, the room to improve gives them a lot more, I guess, upside relative to Copart, which is already executing well. Right. I think what a lot of people would say is they would just say, well, you know, Copart's already generating a good amount of earnings growth and it's not too crazy. The valuation isn't too crazy on Copart. It's definitely rich. So it's probably, you know, going with Copart is like going with like the best of breed, lower execution risk kind of uh, way to play the, the, the sector where IAA is like the higher risk, but probably higher reward if, if uh, they do a good job. Absolutely. Yeah. Lowe's Home Depot just keep, keeps ringing in my head as you make that uh, as you make that that comparison there, Louise. So, so one other company we, we did mention, maybe we can talk about briefly, a car auction services, ticker KAR. And they're in a little bit different niche relative to what IAA and Copart are doing. For sure. So car auction services that, yeah, you mentioned the ticker KAR, they are in what's called whole car auction. So that's non-totaled car. So it's really just used car auctions. And the way to think about what they're, where they sit is they uh, source inventory from like all sorts of interesting channels. So they, when uh, used, uh, when rental car fleets um, turn over, like when rental cars want to replace their used cars with like brand new cars, they'll take it to, to auction 
through car or when um, people who are leasing cars abandon their leases, you know, assuming the cars are still in, in good condition, they'll they'll offload the car or charity auctions, you know, people who donate their old used cars to, to charities. Um, and then what car really does is they're a B2B business. So they're basically the people who are buying on the car auctions are, are primarily used car dealerships who will, you know, then sell to like the retail channel. There's also some like um, individual buyers who will, will also shop on, on car, but it's, it's really a B2B business. And it, I'd say like, there are different, there, there's really interesting differences though, between the total car auction market and the whole car market. Um, namely it's, that this is a more competitive channel because there's just a lot more there's just a lot more places to source uh used cars right and um ebay craigslist being one you could some dealer some used car dealerships will actually buy used cars from other dealerships right there's other use there's other kind of uh b2b used car channels it's not just auction like you can do uh private brokerage or just direct um and and then on the so the, that's on the demand side, and on the supply side, it's it's less the inventory is less guaranteed, and I think that's really the story of the last year with car is they've really suffered due to, from the shortage of used cars, right? So because there haven't been new cars to purchase, rental car fleets aren't getting rid of their existing fleet, right? Because uh, the the price of a used car has gone up so much. This is actually a really interesting situation where people who are sitting on uh, leased cars, they're not abandoning the lease. They're actually buying, uh, they're actually buying the cars because the, the price of the, of the buyout option is set at the beginning of the lease. So there's a little bit of an arbitrage now that you know, used car prices have, have gone up so much. Um, and yeah, so like car has actually suffered and they've actually seen their revenue decline quite a bit in the last year as, as a result of those factors. And they also they also can get squeezed. Right. So to the extent that car needs to to, to buy uh, inventory, they're going to have to pay the higher price for those used cars. Absolutely. So so there there maybe have been a little bit more a victim of what has gone on over the past year, whereas you look at Copart reporting reporting record numbers uh, across the board in the most recent corridor, uh, they've been a beneficiary in this way. Do you see car as being a potential reopening play, right? People are going to start traveling again, getting rental cars when they go to Hawaii and places like that. Do you see this as a, as a business that could potentially benefit from a recovery? Absolutely. I, I think I think car is, of all these, of, of these three companies that we mentioned, I think car is probably going to benefit the most from a recovery. But what you would need to see for them to really benefit from a recovery is some kind of normalization of the uh, the value of used cars, the the used car index. So, like it, it all, it's also interesting to think about whether like Copart or IAA are reopening plays because that's actually really hard to know. Like the answer is kind of yes and no, right? Because Copart and IAA have seen their volume of cars sold decline, um, but they've seen the value go up. So if we get into a situation where um, the volumes of used cars uh, goes up, but the prices of the used cars also remains high or elevated, then IAA and Copart can continue to benefit. 
But we can also see, see the opposite, like what happens if the value of used cars goes down? Well, you know, that might become a headwind and that might potentially benefit car. I mean, car also, you know, they, the, the way they make money is a little bit different from Copart and IAA, which is also worth mentioning. Like, yeah, car makes, you know, they, they make about half of their money from uh, half of their revenue from um, like auction proceeds. But the majority of cars earnings are actually from the ancillary services that they provide. So, um, and more than a third of cars earnings are actually from financing. So they're really involved in, you know, helping people complete that purchase. And that's actually really cars competitive advantage, right? So they're basically financing these used car dealerships, they're financing the floors. And that's that in a lot of cases, that's the reason why uh, used car dealerships are doing business with car because not only can they source the inventory, but they can finance it at a reasonable rate. Absolutely. So, so the relationships, it sounds like in, in this business, very, very different when you're talking about the, the customers uh, that, that you're working with. And so because those customers have different needs, different services offered. Yeah. You know, a really interesting part of this story too is we Carvana and CarMax and some of these other like high flyer used car companies like Vroom. And I think there's a few others they're actually some of KAR's biggest customers. Like they're the, the primary way that Carvana is sourcing its uh, cars is actually from these uh, whole car auctions. Um, and that, that actually is, is a really interesting part of the, of the story because Carvana is having to pay the higher prices for, you know, the used cars because the used car index has gone up so much. And one of the things that uh, Carvana and some of these other companies are doing is they're trying to get, more trade-in business so that people trade in their, their existing cars so that they can kind of get more beneficial pricing. So Luis, when you talk about that, that relationship with Carvana, do you see that as an opportunity or a threat? Obviously, a potential customer to sell product to, but, but as Carvana gets more involved in this trade-in business, uh, you know, then they're a threat to their, to their sourcing, right? I mean, to their, their uh, the, you know, uh, uh, supply. Yeah, the word that comes to mind is frenemy. So it's like they're they're one of the biggest uh, customers, but at the same time, Carvana wants to lower its costs as much as possible. And part of Carvana lowering its costs is, you know, not paying car auctions uh, markup and not paying the auction fees. And you know, if Carvana can just get everyone to do trade-ins, you know, that actually is very is a very proprietary way for Carvana to source inventory and actually can give Carvana a competitive advantage over like a CarMax or another e-commerce player. Yes, something to watch there. And, you know, we'll add Carvana to the list for a, a future podcast, because I'm sure we could do a good, you know, half hour on that one um, alone. But, but you know, as we kind of wrap up uh, uh, this show on, on the car, action, car auction business, Luis, as you think about these, these three companies we talked about today, so Copart, IAA, and, and Car Auction Services, KAR, which company gets you most excited today and why? For sure. Yeah, I think I kind of laid out the thesis for IAA. If, if I was going to if I was gonna make a position in this uh, group of companies, that's probably the one that I would start with. Because if you believe that they can basically replicate the Copart model, and IAA has been a fine business, right? It's, 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 not, it's, it's not quite operating at the level of Copart's margins, and it hasn't quite generated 
the same level of revenue growth as Copart. But a lot of that probably stems from the fact that it was a part of KAR as of you know three years ago, and it didn't have full control over its destiny. And now that and now that IAA is out on its own, you know there is there is this thought that it can potentially execute better because it's more focused. So I think that's that's a really interesting story. Um, but you know again, I think it's like a it's like a higher risk, higher reward situation where if if I was, you know, if I was just really more focused on just getting exposure to to this theme because I like the idea of, you know, it's a fairly countercyclical or uncyclical business, just kind of the way that, you know, the different forces balance out against each other. So, you know, right now, you know, as as we said, like we're in this part of the cycle where the value of used cars is really high, but the number of used cars is low. And the the interesting relationship between that is like when the value of used cars is lower, um, you know, you're going to see a lot more uh, cars coming to market because the more cars are going to be considered totaled, right? So that it's it's a really interesting dynamic that makes this a very stable industry as long as you don't believe that like autonomous cars and self-driving cars are going to completely disrupt, you know. The concept of people getting into car accidents, which I think it, I think that 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 certainly is something on the margin that matters, but I think that that requires a leap of, of faith to believe. Right. F- fundamentally, if you think people are going to keep making mistakes behind the wheel of a car, and we're not going to solve those with technology in the, the immediately near term, these companies continue to have a role, and, and arguably could have a bigger role uh, in, in the future. Absolutely. All right, Luis, as always, love having you on the podcast. Can't wait to have you on again uh, in the future. Thanks, Nick. Had fun. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Luis Sanchez, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and fool on.